being here with us today. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to Aaron's. Thanks for joining us. We take it, uh, we count it as a privilege that you would, you would come here and join us in person or join us online wherever and however you are gathering together with us. We are one people gathered, even though currently um, things are a little disjointed given COVID and all that's going on there. Um, we have been going through, in case you're with us for the first time, we've been going through the book of John, and we're going through John chapter by chapter, kind of passage by passage, and this morning we are in John chapter 13. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 18 to verses 38. This is God's holy inspired word, and, and God intends for His word to speak afresh to us today, and God intends to use His words that are timeless in our lives in this time. So let's read God's word together. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now because before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, the Son, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I will be with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, thanks for providing 
in preserving these words for us so that we might see you, Jesus. I pray that this morning we would behold Jesus, you in all of your glory and that your great love would affect us. That we would see your love and be affected by your love as, as we understand this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would give me your grace to preach this morning by your Holy Spirit and by your Holy Spirit would you enliven hearts and minds enable everyone here to understand what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this scene, it's, it's one of the most memorable in, in all of history. It's, it's the one uh, that, that Leonardo da Vinci, he depicts at his famous painting, The Last Supper. Now, it didn't quite happen like this, but Leonardo da Vinci was trying to capture the mood of the moment when Jesus, he's just announced the fact that someone sitting there with them, or actually someone laying there, reclining there at the table with them, someone, one of them, one of the twelve, one of these close friends who had been together for three years, one of them would betray Jesus. And so Leonardo da Vinci tries to capture that moment where they're all confused, there's a little bit of chaos happening, and they're looking at each other. They're trying to figure out who it might be. And, and, you, and you see this, this mood kind of going on, the emotion here. And, and in our passage, the betrayal of, of Jesus by Judas is looming large. And it ends with the denial of Peter. On both ends, you see the failure of the disciples. And, and, and through it all, you see one of the close disciples betraying Jesus and then one of Jesus' closest disciples will deny him. And the key, though, is to to see what what is this passage trying to reveal? What's John trying to show us? John is trying to show that in the midst of betrayal and in the midst of denial, in between all of that, through all of that, Jesus, he's radically loving his disciples because he knows about both. You see, he knows about both the betrayal and he also knows about the denial. And yet, in the middle of all that, through all those things, we see that Jesus radically loves through betrayal and denial and he does that to enable his disciples to love one another. He's loving in the midst of betrayal and denial. Now, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being Jesus and knowing that, knowing what was going to transpire, knowing who was going to betray him, who was going to deny him, actually knowing that all of his disciples were going to leave him. And yet, he is in the middle of loving his disciples. Remember that this passage, we, we break passages up just for preaching and so that we don't, aren't here for hours at a time. But right before this, right in the verses, in the same meal... Jesus had just gotten up in the middle of the meal and he goes around to the table and he took the place of the lowest servant and he washed the disciples' feet. He was demonstrating his love to all the disciples. He was removing the soil from their feet, demonstrating the fact that that he would actually remove the soil from their souls. He would take the place of a loving servant to remove the soil that truly stains their souls. And so now he has just finished this. He's gone back. He's sitting down there at this meal The disciples are a little confused already, and now in the middle of this meal, the mood changes again. And Jesus says, you know, he's just told them that that you're you're all clean, you don't need to be cleansed, yet I'm not talking about all of you, not all of you are clean. And then in our passage, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you, and then he says something else, he says, I know whom I have chosen, 
I know whom I have chosen. And, and you know, sometimes those words are just throwaway words, but it, it's really critical that we get that. When Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, what does that mean? What does that show us? What's John trying to reveal through this passage? What he's trying to reveal is that there's, in the midst of Jesus knowing who he's chosen, knowing their hearts, knowing that they would betray and deny and leave him, you see, all the 12 were not innocent. He, he knew he had chosen. In the midst of knowing who he'd chosen, he loved them, it says, to the very end. And because of, of Christ's love, we see Christ's love displayed. He knew who he'd chosen, and yet he, he carries out, he continues to love them faithfully all the way to the very end. And then as, the, as, as he is loving them to the very end, he prescribes to them, he tells them, in light of my love, you need to love. And in order to see this, John says, I, I know whom I've chosen. He says he wants us to see that, that Jesus knows who he's chosen. He knows each and every one of the people that are following him. He wasn't just saying he knew the 11. He was saying he knew Ju- Judas. He knew Judas's heart. He knew Judas whom he had chosen. And it wasn't an accident. He chose Judas knowing that Judas would betray him. And he loved Judas knowing that Judas would betray him. Do you remember way back in John 6, uh, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And after feeding 5,000 people, some of them are having a struggle because Jesus says that if if you're going to be my follower, you, you need to eat me. You need to eat of me. You need to consume me. Your whole life has to be revolve around me so much so that it's like you're consuming, like you're eating me. I'm your very bread. I'm the bread of life. And some people really struggle with that. And so in John 60... I mean, John 6, 64, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. He says, for, for Jesus knew from the very beginning who it was who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And, and what John's trying to get us to see is that even despite the fact that Jesus knew who it was he'd chosen, he loved him anyway. He loved him anyway. How about you? Could, could you do that? I, I, I can't imagine loving somebody that I knew was going to betray me beforehand. I have a hard enough time when people betray me loving them afterwards. But in Christ, we see radical love patterned. That's, that's really the, the first big idea that, that, that John wants us to see is this, this radical pattern of Christ's love for us. In, in Christ, we see, God's, we see radical love patterned to us. Jesus had told us in in John 6, he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let me ask you this. If if you were Jesus, would you have chosen Judas to begin with? Knowing that he would betray you later. I don't know about you, but I I wouldn't have chosen that. And, And if you knew that Judas was against you and was going to sell you out, would you have invited him to dinner? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you, you might have done that out of obedience to God because you knew that it was part of God's plan. But if I was Jesus, I would have given Judas the cold shoulder. I, I would have, I would have turned, I turned away from him. I would have maybe been standoffish or kind of short with him or ignored him or marginalized him or made it obvious that I didn't really like him very much. And yet we see from this pattern from this picture here that that wasn't the case at all because none of the disciples had any clue that Jesus had any lack of affection because he loved Judas to the end as well he treated Judas with honor he treated Judas with dignity 
I wouldn't have treated Judas so kindly. I wouldn't have made him in charge of the money for the group. I don't think I would have been able to stand being around him if I knew what he was going to do. And so what's John trying to get us to see? John's trying to get us to see that, that Jesus knew this, and yet he still loved him. That's radical love. That's, that's not common love. That's not love like you and I naturally have. The reality is, all of us have people who have betrayed us. Or at least you will one day. And, 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 I, and I, I know that I've had people who betray me, and I don't, I don't like being around them. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that, but it's true. I don't like being around people who betrayed me. And, and if I knew what was coming, I would have avoided being friends with them in the first place. Because I don't like pain. I don't, I don't like to bring that kind of pain on myself, that isolation, the betrayal. And, and you know, even now I'm still tempted when I see people who betrayed me because we live in town together. I, I'm tempted to avoid them. And, and yet what does the love of Christ compel me to do? It compels me to, to follow the example of Christ that he had radical love even though he was going to be betrayed and he knew it, he still loved Judas. How about you? Have you ever had a, a friend or a loved one betray you? You ever had someone go behind your back, talk badly about you, betray your trust, do things to violate your love? It's, it's, it's just a matter of time before you are betrayed if you haven't already been. I don't mean to be cynical. I just, it's, it's realistic. It's true. You know, Christianity is not for people who are fake and pretend that everything's rosy. Jesus came to love and to demonstrate love in the midst of betrayal. He, he came to love us so that we might learn how to love, so that we might be able to love each other in the midst of and through betrayal. And he was patient, he was kind, he was gracious to Judas. There was, there was no hint of dislike towards Judas in his relationship with him. And think about this, he, he has just gone around washing all the disciples' feet and, and he's giving Judas yet another chance to see his love, to know his love, to experience his love. He is not done with Judas until Judas rejects him. Jesus is constantly pursuing Judas, constantly faithful, constantly loving him. He's washed his feet and now he's sitting with Judas. And then he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And what he's doing is he's quoting actually a, a messianic psalm, a, a psalm that David wrote. David had been betrayed by one of his close friends, Ahithophel, and, and Ahithophel had betrayed David, unbeknownst to David to begin with. And then when they found out, Ahithophel goes out and he committed suicide by hanging himself. And so now Jesus is quoting this in relation to Judas. And he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he says, I'm telling you this now so that you know. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what's about to happen, not because um, I, I need to kind of bolster my own assurance of what I'm going to do, but I, I'm telling you this now so that you know when it happens who I am, that, so that you can see my love, that only I can love like this. So you can see that I'm the Christ. I am he. I'm the Messiah. And then Jesus, though it says after saying these things, it says he was troubled in his spirit. It wasn't easy to love like this. 
He was troubled as in his spirit. And he says, truly, truly, in verse 21, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And the disciples must have been confused because they didn't get when he said, he who's going to eat bread with me will lift his heel against me. Why is he quoting the Psalms? And so Jesus makes it really clear and says, what I'm saying is that one of you is going to betray me. Now they were shocked. And they started looking around the room. I can imagine the mood in that moment when they were told, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is the killer. It's like a murder mystery when that, that kind of dramatic moment where everybody's gathered in the mansion and this detective tells the guests that one of you is a killer and he doesn't let any of them leave and they're all acting like they don't know and they're looking at each other and you're confused. The disciples were in that moment confused Judas was pretending, he was a great pretender, and some scholars actually would say that, that Judas was probably one of the most well-educated ones, most, uh, one of the ones who was most trusted because he was most respectable, that's why he carried the money bags, and so Judas had all the appearances of propriety, he had all the appearances of being a trusted one, and yet he's pretending to be someone he's not. Just like it's possible today to be a part of the church, it's possible to profess following Jesus and actually not truly put your faith and trust in him. Well, disciples, they're uncertain about who he spoke about, and so they're looking around, all these sideways glances. And and in those days, for for a meal like the Passover, it wasn't really anything like what da Vinci has told us. Um, All the disciples, if you're wondering, why does it say he reclined at tables? Because they would actually lay down. I think I have a picture of, of, of what a table might have looked like. It was... They, they had all these pads and cushions all around the table and then go to the next one over. They would lay down on the table and so this is, this is a depiction of not of real people but a drawing. And so they would lay down on their left-hand side, side by side, all around this table, four on each side for all 12 of the disciples and they were laying on their left-hand side. And, and, and the interesting thing is, is that John was probably laying right in front of Jesus because, and you can go to the next slide, um, this you can't quite see in the little teeny print, but down the very bottom left, that was probably where John was. He was laying at the table there. Jesus was right behind him because it says the disciple who Jesus loved, which we know is, is most likely John, he leans back and he looks at Jesus and he, and he says, who is it? And he was close enough. He was right there. And we also know that, that Judas was close enough to, to dip in the same bowl and that was a practice that would be done only with the host and the guest of honor. And so most likely what most scholars believe is that Judas was in fact that guest of honor. Now that brings a whole lot more gravity to the situation, doesn't it? It makes it more meaningful when you understand that not only was Jesus loving Judas, Jesus had placed him most likely as the guest of honor and was sharing a bowl with them. He's washed his feet. He's honoring him. And yet, Judas is going to betray him. Everyone's looking around. Most likely, Peter was across. He had either placed himself on purpose at the, at the lowest seat or, or been placed there by Jesus. And so Peter's looking across when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter's like, you know, kind of motioning to John. Who is it? Can you ask him who it is? And so John kind of leans back up quietly and says, Jesus, who, who is it? And so it says that Jesus, he didn't beat around the bush. He answers John directly. 
And he says, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. You see, it was a custom in that day for the host, he would give the guest of honor a morsel. He would, he would dip bread and he would dip it in sauce or, or wine or whatever it was and he would, he would dip it into that and he would, he would actually feed it to the guest of honor. And, and there was a custom that was very common at, at formal meals. And so Jesus says, hey, the one who I'm going to dip this and give it to is the one who's going to betray me. And then according to custom, when the host would hand this morsel to the guest of honor, it was a symbol of, of love. It was a symbol of friendship. And, and the, the guest of honor taking that from the host would be receiving that and saying, I'm receiving your love. I'm receiving your friendship. I acknowledge your love. I acknowledge your friendship. And so Jesus, he dips the bread in, into this Passover lamb sauce probably, and he hands it to Judas. He hands this morsel to him as an extension of love and of friendship. And he's demonstrating and doing that his radical, extreme love for his own betrayer. And then Judas takes it and he eats it. I, I can't imagine how revolting it must have been later for the disciples as they recalled this scene, as John recalls this scene of how Judas is honored. Judas is given this morsel. He's given this symbol of love and of friendship. He's had his feet washed. Jesus has loved him to the very end. And Judas took it, knowing that he was going to betray Jesus, hardening his heart even then. And yet Jesus was lovingly pursuing Judas to the very end, just like he lovingly pursues each and every person here, each and every person who is far from God. Each and every person who has hardened their hearts, each and every person who has betrayed Christ, who has gone against what they know about God, he, he continues to pursue and he holds out to each and every person his affection, his love, his friendship. He says, will you take of my love? Will you take of my friendship? Will you believe in me? He says it even now. And yet Judas, he hardens his heart and he rejects the love of Jesus. He pretends to accept it but doesn't. And so John tells us that, that Satan enters into him at that moment. And then Jesus, knowing what Judas was about to do, doesn't stop him. I, I might have done that. I might have stopped him. Or I might have told the other 11 guys there who easily could have taken Judas to say, hey, he's about to betray me. You didn't get it. You, I just dipped this morsel. I told you I was going to do that. You didn't understand it. Probably because Judas was the guest of honor. They didn't understand that he had done that and given it to him. They couldn't understand. Jesus, well, you told John that, that you're whoever you dip, but that's the guest of honor. So surely it couldn't be Judas. Judas is so well-respected. He's the guy who carries the money bags. He's the guest of honor. What in the world? So they didn't get it. At that moment, I probably would have gotten frustrated and said, guys, did you not hear me? Judas, he's the one. Get him. And yet he doesn't. What does he say? He says to Judas, what are you going to do? Do quickly. I, I know what you're going to do. I extend my hand of love to you and I know what you're still going to do. Do it quickly. Jesus willingly lets the would-be killer leave. Unlike in the murder mysteries. And truly in Christ we see radical love patterns. And, and they didn't understand still the disciples they didn't try to stop him it says in verse 28 no at the table knew why he said this to him some of them thought that he was maybe 
He had the money back, so he was going to go buy something. He was going to go give money to the poor. And Judas goes out. And then John writes three little words that, that reflect what had happened. It says, and it was night. Four words, it was night. Setting for John is always important. He, he, he writes poetically, and it was night. It's the time where utter darkness had arrived, the darkness of Judas' soul, the time when the light of the world would be cut off, when Judas had willingly rejected the love of Christ was the dark moment. It was night. And then verse 31 says, when he had gone out, that Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, God's glorified in him. Now, and why did Jesus say that? How is the Son of Man glorified? How is Jesus glorified here? How is God glorified? How can it glorify God that, that Jesus was about to be betrayed, that Judas, the hypocrite, he had betrayed the love of Jesus, he had rejected it, even though Jesus had loved him to the very end. You see, this whole scene reveals the glory of Jesus because this demonstrates his great love, his radical love, his faithful love to the very end to those who would betray him. And Jesus is glorified. The, the, the love of Jesus is magnified, glorified by the hypocrisy and deceit and denial of Judas. Jesus' glory was going to be put on display in his selfless love even more in the cross that was going to occur in a few hours. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to be with you very much longer. I, I told the Jews already, where I'm going, you can't come. And the place where he was going to go was going to be the cross. And the reason why they couldn't go there is because they could not pay for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could pay for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could carry the shame and sin that, that all of humanity had. And only Jesus could take the punishment of God that all of humanity deserved. So they couldn't go where he was going because they couldn't do what he was going to do. And yet they would soon see the greatest display of his love, even greater than what we see here. And in light of that, Jesus says, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going somewhere and you can't go there. But in light of that, in light of my love, in light of my love for you, I've demonstrated now, and in light of the love I'm going to demonstrate for you, I'm going to give you a new commandment because my love has an effect. My love changes things. My love changes people. My love changes you. And so because my love will change you, I'm, I'm going to give you a command so that you can, in turn, help change others. And so he says, a new commandment I give to you, in verse 34, that you love one another just as I've loved you you're also to love one another. What's, what's John trying to get? He's trying to show us that because of Christ's love, radical love is prescribed. Because of Christ's radical love to us, radical love is prescribed. John's trying to show us the radical love of Jesus and saying in light of the radical love of Jesus and because of that radical love, because he went to the place that we could not go, now radical love is prescribed. Just as Jesus loved Judas, even though he knew and always known that Judas was about to betray him, just as he washed the disciples' feet, knowing that they were all about to desert, those same feet that he washed were about to walk away from him. I can imagine Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and he knows that very soon they will go to the garden, and all those same feet will walk away. Every one of the disciples would desert him. Every one of the disciples would leave him alone. And Jesus, who said he would give, and Peter, who said he would give his life for Jesus, will deny him. And Jesus says to them, Love each other like I have loved you. That's a radical call, isn't it? 
Love each other like I've loved you. And especially in light of this Last Supper and understanding the Last Supper, understanding the fact that Jesus loved them to the very end, it's, it's, it's a radical love. When Jesus says, love other people like that, knowing that they're going to betray you. Love those who betray you. Love those who will deny you. Love those that you know are going to desert you. He says, love like that. And you know what? That kind of love is going to have an effect. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because it's only, that kind of love is only possible for people who are truly following Jesus. You can only love somebody who betrays you if you have the love of Christ in you. You can only love somebody who deserts you if you have the love of Christ in you. You can only love those who will deny you if Jesus' love is resident in you. You know, we're, we're living in one of the most fractured times that I can recall. Now, I, I, I don't think that's just my perspective. It's, it's not the most divisive time, I, I realize that, but it's the most divisive time in my lifetime, probably. People are disagreeing on, on perspectives over a myriad of social issues and politics and the cause and effect of all of those things. They're not just disagreeing over what they see, they're disagreeing over the cause of things and the perspective on things. And, and everybody's in a place of disagreement right now in the world all around us. No matter what political party you are in, there is bias all around and it's intense. And every political party, every perspective, it, it, it claims superiority and people are aligning themselves and, and declaring allegiance and, and thinking that they're better than other people because they have a superior perspective or they truly understand or they truly see clearly and, and that they are right. There's all kinds of assumptions about the hearts of those who are in those opposing groups. People suspect each other of hatred and accuse each other of hatred. And the world is, is, seems to be dividing up, at least in the United States, in, in unprecedented ways of, of camps of us and them. And, and there's labels thrown about. Accusations fly from the left, from the right. Animosity grows. Separation deepens and bitterness and resentment and hatred grows for those who don't agree with us or share our perspective or conclusions. And people in the world, they're divided along every line, every practice and preference and difference imaginable. Unfortunately, many who name the name of Christ have taken on that same divisiveness of the world. They make assumptions about each other, suspecting and accusing each other in our hearts thinking our perspectives, our opinions, our conclusions are superior. Now, now, I'm not saying that there's not objective truth. There is. The objective truth is the truth we have in God's Word. We can trust His Word is objective and true. We can trust His Word is good and right. And His Word is infallible. And, and yet, that's, that's typically not what we're dividing over. We're thinking our opinions and perspectives on social issues are superior and declaring to our friends or our family or the people who align with us of how bad those other people are and then we air our, our sinful perspectives on social media. And then left to ourselves, we, we seek those who agree with us. We're tempted to say, you know what? I don't like those other people who aren't like me so I'm only going to be around people who are like me. Right? You ever feel that way? You ever have that temptation? Whether it be political party or skin color or language or country of origin or food or parenting choice or social issues or status or wealth or poverty or a myriad of distinctions, we are tempted to 
gather with those we find to be like us. And, and Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, love me like I love you. And, and loving one another like Jesus has loved us means we love through disagreements. We love through divisiveness. We love past those who would deny, those who would betray. We love through the people who would desert us. And we love people like that. You know, church division is not really new. In Jesus' day, their divisions were even more distinct than ours. And they, the Jews and Gentiles, they hated each other. The Romans hated them. There was so much hatred and division between Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian and slave and free. And yet Jesus came, he says, to tear down those dividing walls, the walls that separate so that we would be one in him, not one in status, but one in Christ, one in status before God. He came to seek and save those from every tongue and tribe and nation. And, and, and church, if you're in close fellowship with other believers, you are going to find that there are areas that they are not like you. If you are actually loving people closely, the more you love people, the grosser they'll be to you at times. The uglier they will be to you at times. The, the more they will irritate you at times. That's why, you know, often in your family, your family, you love them the most and they agitate you the most. Because you see those little differences and, and and it's yet, it's through those differences that we're called to love. And that is a demonstration of Christ's love for us. Because he loves us despite all of our differences with him. Think of how different we are from God. Jesus had every reason to hate us. Think of how annoying the disciples must have been to Jesus, yet he was not annoyed with them. Think of all of their, their pettiness, all of their disagreements. And in, in other Gospels, it tells us that actually right before this, right before the Last Supper, before Jesus washed their feet, what, what likely transpired, they were arguing about who was the greatest still on the last night at the Last Supper. And Jesus could have chosen to be annoyed with them and to reject them and say, forget it. I'm done. And yet he loved them to the end. And he tells his disciples, don't be like the world. Don't divide and leave because there are differences. Church, don't go and join people who are like you and then discriminate against your brothers and sisters. Instead, the greater the love of Christ that we have for each other, the more that diversity will actually flourish. And, and the greater the diversity, the greater the opportunity for us to love like Jesus. You, you, know, you ever think about the fact that Jesus has placed you in this body, in this church, with people who aren't like you, so that you can learn to be like him? You ever think about that? If the greatest reason why he has saved us is for us to be conformed, to be made back into his image, like Adam was before the fall, he's recreating us, he's making us, he's shaping us back into his image. And you know how he does that? He does that by putting us around other image bearers who are bothersome at times who might deny you, who might betray you, who are different than you. And he says, I want you to know, just like I've loved you, I want you to love each other. And by that, everyone will know. Because why? Because that's a supernatural, radical love. And it takes a supernatural, radical change. You can't just determine to love people like that. You have to actually receive the love of Christ yourself in order to be able to love like that. 
John closes out the scene with some, some serious irony. Look down at verse 36. He makes it clear that Judas wasn't the only sinner in the room. Peter, Peter he professes his great faith and says, where you are going, I will follow you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Why can't I follow you now? I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers him with a question, and I can imagine the question stung at the time. And he says to Peter, he says, will you lay down your life for me? Will you lay down your life for me? That's not how it works. You see, Jesus will lay down his life for him. Jesus lays down his life for us so that we will never be denied by him. And and, and then he prophesies about Peter and the fact that Peter will deny him before the rooster crows three times. John wants us to see that, that through it all, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. And he loves us in the same way. His love is the most compelling example. But we don't just have an example. Because Christ has loved us faithfully to the end, because he died on the cross for us, he has enabled us as we put our faith in him to count ourselves as dead to our old way of living, dead to our old nature, dead to the the normal way we have of living, and then alive to him. And and then it, it counts us as, God counts us as being alive in Christ. And then he says, the same spirit that dwells in you, that dwells in Jesus, dwells in you. You see, what what he does is he makes us alive and then he gives us his life. And if you think about it, his life was love because God himself is love. It says God is love. And if Jesus is God, then, then Jesus is love, right? And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been made alive in him, then actually you have the life of Christ in you, which means that you have the love of Christ in you and you are now able to begin to love like this. His love is radical and it's radically transforming. And he radically loves through betrayal and denial to enable his disciples to love each other. So by faith, let's trust in his life. Look for his love to flow through us as we have received his love. Amen? We have the band come up and we'll sing together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have radically loved us faithfully despite our denials, despite our betrayals, despite the fact that we all have wandered away just like the disciples. There's there's no one innocent. All of us have gone away from you. All of us have wandered from you. All of us are faulty. And yet, Jesus, your great love is what radically transforms us, compels us, and and is appealing to us. Lord, your love, Jesus, is what makes us want you and and makes us cry out for you to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us, to to make us new. And so, Lord, I I pray that for anyone here who has not yet known your love personally, that you would enable them to repent, to, to confess that they need you. And ask you, Jesus, to make them alive, make them anew and that you would show your love to them afresh. And Father, then I pray that you would enable us to radically love others because of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.